Chapter forty five of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty five The Development of Latin Christendom. It is worth while to note the extremely shrunken dimensions of the share of the world remaining under Arian control in the seventh and eighth centuries. A thousand years before, the Aryan-speaking races were triumphant over all the civilized world west of China. Now, the Mongol had thrust as far as Hungary. Nothing of Asia remained under Aryan rule except the Byzantine dominions in Asia Minor, and all Africa was lost, and nearly all Spain. The great Hellenic world had shrunken to a few possessions around the nucleus of the trading city of Constantinople, and the memory of the Roman world was kept alive by the Latin of the Western Christian priests. In vivid contrast to this tale of retrogression, the Semitic tradition had risen again from subjugation and obscurity after a thousand years of darkness. Yet the vitality of the Nordic peoples was not exhausted. Confined now to Central and Northwestern Europe, and terribly muddled in their social and political ideas, they were nevertheless building up gradually and steadily a new social order and preparing unconsciously for the recovery of a power even more extensive than they had previously enjoyed. We have told how, at the beginning of the sixth century, there remained no central government in Western Europe at all. That world was divided up among numbers of local rulers holding their own as they could, this was too insecure a state of affairs to last. A system of cooperation and association grew up in this disorder, the feudal system, which has left its traces upon European life up to the present time. The feudal system, which has left its traces upon European life up to the present time. This feudal system was a sort of crystallization of society about power. Everywhere the lone man felt insecure, and was prepared to barter a certain amount of his liberty to help and protection. He sought a stronger man as his lord and protector. He gave him military services and paid him dues, and in return he was confirmed in his possession of what was his. His lord again found safety in vassalage to a still greater lord. Cities also found it convenient to have feudal protectors, and monasteries and church estates bound themselves by similar ties. No doubt in many cases allegiance was claimed before it was offered. The system grew downward as well as upward. So a sort of pyramidal system grew up, varying widely in different localities, permitting at first a considerable play of violence and private warfare, but making steadily for order and a new reign of law. The pyramids grew up until some became recognizable as kingdoms. Already by the early 6th century a Frankish kingdom existed under its founder Clovis in what is now France and the Netherlands, and presently Visigothic and Lombard and Gothic kingdoms were in existence. The Moslem, when they crossed the Pyrenees in 720, found this Frankish kingdom under the practical rule of Charles Martel, the mayor of the palace of a degenerate descendant of Clovis, and experienced the decisive defeat at Poitiers, 732, at his hands. This Charles Martel 
was practically overlord of Europe north of the Alps from the Pyrenees to Hungary. He ruled over a multitude of subordinate lords, speaking French, Latin, and high and low German languages. His son Pepin extinguished the last descendants of Clovis and took the kingly state and title. His grandson Charlemagne, who began to reign in 768, found himself lord of a realm so large that he could think of reviving the title of Latin Emperor. He conquered North Italy and made himself master of Rome. Approaching the story of Europe as we do from the wider horizons of world history, we can see much more distinctly than the mere nationalist historian how cramping and disastrous this tradition of the Latin Roman Empire was. A narrow, intense struggle for this phantom predominance was to consume European energy for more than a thousand years. Through all that period, it is possible to trace certain unquenchable antagonisms. They run through the wits of Europe like the obsessions of a demented mind. One driving force was this ambition of successful rulers, which Charlemagne, Charles the Great, embodied to become Caesar. The realm of Charlemagne consisted of a complex of feudal German states at various stages of barbarism. West of the Rhine, most of these German peoples had learned to speak various Latinized dialects, which fused at last to form French. East of the Rhine, the racially similar German peoples did not lose their German speech. On account of this, communication was difficult between these two groups of barbarian conquerors, and a split easily brought about. The split was made the more easy by the fact that the Frankish usage made it seem natural to divide the empire of Charlemagne among his sons at his death. So one aspect of the history of Europe from the days of Charlemagne onwards is a history of first this monarch and his family, and then that, struggling to a precarious headship of the kings, princes, dukes, bishops, and cities of Europe, while a steadily deepening antagonism between the French and German-speaking elements develops in the medley. There was a formality of election for each emperor, and the climax of his ambition was to struggle to the possession of that worn-out, misplaced capital Rome, and to coronation there. The next factor in the European political disorder was the resolve of the Church at Rome to make no temporal prince but the Pope of Rome himself emperor in effect. He was already Pontifex Maximus, for all practical purposes he held a decaying city. If he had no armies, he had at least a vast propaganda organization in his priests throughout the whole Latin world. If he had little power over men's bodies, he held the keys of heaven and hell in their imaginations, and could exercise much influence upon their souls. So throughout the Middle Ages, while one prince maneuvered against another first for equality, then for ascendancy, and at last for the supreme prize, the Pope of Rome, sometimes boldly, sometimes craftily, sometimes feebly, for the popes were a succession of oldish men, and the average reign of a pope was not more than two years, manoeuvred for the submission of all the princes to himself, as the ultimate overlord of Christendom. But these antagonisms of prince against prince and of emperor against pope 
do not by any means exhaust the factors of the European confusion. There was still an emperor in Constantinople speaking Greek, and claiming the allegiance of all Europe. When Charlemagne sought to revive the empire, it was merely the Latin end of the empire he revived. It was natural that the sense of rivalry between Latin empire and Greek empire should develop very rapidly, and still more readily did the rivalry of Greek-speaking Christianity and the newer Latin-speaking version developed. The Pope of Rome claimed to be the successor of St. Peter, the chief of the apostles of Christ, and the head of the Christian community everywhere. Neither the emperor nor the patriarch in Constantinople were disposed to acknowledge this claim. A dispute about a fine point in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity consummated a long series of dissensions in a final rupture in 1054. The Latin Church and the Greek Church became and remained, thereafter, distinct and frankly antagonistic. This antagonism must be added to the others in our estimate of the conflicts that wasted Latin Christendom in the Middle Ages. Upon this divided world of Christendom reigned the blows of three sets of antagonists. About the Baltic and North Seas remained a series of Nordic tribes who were only very slowly and reluctantly Christianized. These were the Northmen. They had taken to the sea and piracy, and were raiding all the Christian coasts down to Spain. They had pushed up the Russian rivers to the desolate central lands, and brought their shipping over into the south-flowing rivers. They had come out upon the Caspian and Black Seas as pirates also. They set up principalities in Russia. They were the first people to be called Russians. These Norsemen, Russians, came near to taking Constantinople. England in the early ninth century was a Christianized, low-German country under a king, Egbert, a protégé and pupil of Charlemagne. The Norsemen wrested half the kingdom from his successor Alfred the Great, 886, and finally under Canute, 1016, made themselves masters of the whole land. Under Rolf the Ganger, 912, another band of Norsemen conquered the north of France, which became Normandy. Canute ruled not only over England, but over Norway and Denmark, but his brief empire fell to pieces at his death through that political weakness of the barbaric peoples, division among a ruler's sons. It is interesting to speculate what might have happened if this temporary union of the Norsemen had endured. They were a race of astonishing boldness and energy. They sailed in their galleys even to Iceland and Greenland. They were the first Europeans to land on American soil. Latent on Norman adventurers were to recover Sicily from the Saracens and sack Rome. It is a fascinating thing to imagine what a great northern seafaring power might have grown out of Canute's kingdom, reaching from America to Russia. To the east of the Germans and Latinized Europeans was a medley of Slav tribes and Turkish peoples. Prominent among these were the Magyars or Hungarians, who were coming westward throughout the 8th and ninth centuries. Charlemagne held them for a time, but after his death they established themselves in what is now Hungary, and after the fashion of their kindred predecessors, the Huns, raided every summer into the settled parts of Europe. In 938 
they went through germany into france crossed the alps into north italy and so came home burning robbing and destroying finally pounding away from the south the vestiges of the roman empire were the saracens they had made themselves largely masters of the sea their only formidable adversaries upon the water were the norsemen the russian norsemen out of the black sea and the norsemen of the west hemmed in by these more vigorous and aggressive peoples amidst forces they did not understand and dangers they could not estimate charlemagne and after him a series of other ambitious spirits took up the futile drama of restoring the western empire under the name of the holy roman empire from the time of charlemagne onward this idea obsessed the political life of western europe while in the east the greek half of the roman power decayed and dwindled until at last nothing remained of it at all but the corrupt trading city of constantinople and a few miles of territory about it politically the continent of europe remained traditional and uncreative from the time of charlemagne onward for a thousand years the name of charlemagne looms large in european history but his personality is but indistinctly seen he could not read nor write but he had a considerable respect for learning he liked to be read aloud to at meals and he had a weakness for theological discussion at his winter quarters at aix la capelle or mayence he gathered about him a number of learned men and picked up much from their conversation in the summer he made war against the spanish saracens against the slaws and magyars against the saxons and other still heathen german tribes it is doubtful whether the idea of becoming caesar in succession to romulus augustus occurred to him before his acquisition of north italy or whether it was suggested to him by pope leo the third who was anxious to make the latin church independent of constantinople there were the most extraordinary manoeuvres at rome between the pope and the prospective emperor in order to make it appear or not appear as if the pope gave him the imperial crown the pope succeeded in crowning his visitor and conqueror by surprise in st peter's on christmas day eight hundred a d he produced a crown put it on the head of charlemagne and hailed him caesar and augustus there was a great applause among the people charlemagne was by no means pleased at the way in which the thing was done it rankled in his mind as a defeat and he left the most careful instructions to his son that he was not to let the pope crown him emperor he was to seize the crown into his own hands and put it on his own head himself so at the very outset of this imperial revival we see beginning the age-long dispute of pope and emperor for priority but louis the pious the son of charlemagne disregarded his father's instructions and was entirely submissive to the pope the empire of charlemagne fell apart at the death of louis the pious and the split between the french-speaking franks and the german-speaking franks widened the next emperor to arise was otto the son of a certain henry the fowler a saxon who had been elected king of germany by an assembly of german princes and prelates in nine hundred nineteen otto descended upon rome and was crowned emperor there in nine hundred sixty two 
this saxon line came to an end early in the eleventh century and gave place to other german rulers the feudal princes and nobles to the west who spoke various french dialects did not fall under the sway of these german emperors after the carlovingian line the line that is descended for charlemagne had come to an end and no part of britain ever came into the holy roman empire the duke of normandy the king of france and a number of lesser feudal rulers remained outside in nine hundred eighty seven the kingdom of france passed out of the possession of the carlovingian line into the hands of hugh capet whose descendants were still reigning in the eighteenth century at the time of hugh capet the king of france ruled only a comparatively small territory around paris in ten sixty six england was attacked almost simultaneously by an invasion of the norwegian norsemen under king harald hardrada and by the latinized norsemen under the duke of normandy harald king of england defeated the former at the battle of stamford bridge and was defeated by the latter at hastings england was conquered by the normans and so cut off from scandinavian teutonic and russian affairs and brought into the most intimate relations and conflicts with the french for the next four centuries the english were entangled in the conflicts of the french feudal princes and wasted upon the fields of france End of chapter 45